But Brother Plowman said to me one morning, he said, will you stand up and speak to the people after the service? Just let them know what happened. And I did. And a woman came up to me and she said, she was a GP, a doctor, and she said, do you, do you believe that you and your husband were called to go to Arianjaya? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, um, you know, I, I said, I, I don't have an answer for that. I believe we were, but I don't know now. And she said, if God had really wanted you to go there, why do you think he allowed your husband to die? Mm. I said, I don't know. His thoughts are way above our thoughts. His yeah. ways are not our ways, I don't know. And she said, don't you see? Would you have gone to Irianjaya if your husband had died in Australia? I said, oh, no. Mm. She said, don't you see? She said, it wasn't your husband. God used your husband to take you to Irianjaya, but you're the one who's going to be the missionary. And when she said this to me, I felt... I feel an overpowering sense of the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. But it was frightening at the same time. Welcome to the Hacka Podcast. My name is Greg Hackathorn. I hope you all are doing well. I can't tell you how excited I am to share this conversation with you. Today we are blessed to be joined by a personal hero of mine and an incredible woman of God. Sister Margaret Bullett is a retired missionary and former overseas missions director of the UPCA. She has an amazing story to tell. I was able to sit down with her during her most recent trip to Sydney and talk about all that God has done in her life. We went a little bit long, so I have decided to split this conversation into two parts. This week, we will be talking about her childhood, how she and her husband came to God, and her time as a missionary in Jayapura, Irianjaya, or West Papua, that's the Indonesian side of New Guinea. And there she established the first UPC church in the city of Jayapura. Before we get to the conversation, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. I hope you are able to relax over the coming weeks with family and friends and take advantage of this wonderful time of the year. Hopefully you are able to give and receive some great gifts. I know I'm looking forward to Christmas morning with my two girls. If you do get something out of this conversation, I want to encourage you to share it with a friend and maybe post about it in your social media story. That way, more people can hear about it and, uh, and it can impact their life just like it impacted yours. Also, if you have time to rate and review the show, I hope we've earned a five-star rating from you. Uh, if you're able to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. It gives me some feedback. It also makes it easier for people to discover the show. Well, now that all of that is taken care of, let's get to this first part of my conversation with Margaret Bullett. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Sister Bullett. Thank you, Brother Greg. It's uh, an honor. I do feel very honored, but I also feel very nervous. And um, yes, uh, we'll leave it with the Lord, eh? <laughs> well, I've been very much looking forward to this conversation ever since... You know, I started this podcast and we're having uh, conversations with apostolic leaders. Your name was on the list because I just, I love your story and I want everyone that that is connected to me to be able to hear your story, what God has done in your life and, and through you. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to this. 
Well, that's good. I, to be honest, um, I think about that scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 27, where the Lord says that uh, he has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and that God has chosen the weak things of the world to um, confound the mighty. And all through my ministry, uh, that has been brought home to me, that he has chosen the foolish things of the world. So it doesn't give you a swelled head. You know who you are. You know that it's the Lord that does it all. Oh. Well, I admire your humility. Uh, and obviously, if uh, if you don't know Sister Bellette, you would have noticed a bit of an accent here at the beginning of this conversation. I would like to start there. We'd like to start by uh, getting... Uh, to know the guest a bit, uh, to hear a little bit about their background, growing up, where they come from, that sort of thing. So if you wouldn't mind, Sister Blett, sharing with the listeners uh, your backstory, where you come from, and so on. Well, I guess you can tell from my accent that I'm Scottish. Some people do ask me if I'm Irish. My dad uh, has an Irish background. My mum has a Scottish background, so it's a bit of a mixture. I was born in Glasgow, Govan. And um, in, on the 28th of November, 1940, so I'm 81 years old. Um, we were born into an environment, post-war, World War II. Uh, the armies had been, uh, what do you call it, demobilized, mm -hmm. I guess. And we had literally hundreds of thousands of men and women looking for employment. Where words can't describe the poverty that we lived in. It was like my sister, Mary, Mary Liverani, wrote a book called The Winter Sparrows. And she's a marvelous writer, marvelous author. And The Winter Sparrows is exactly what we were like, picking out an existence from day to day. Uh, I remember she and I, when we were young, maybe nine, eight or nine years old, we used to take an old pram and push it up the embankment of the railway line where the trains came uh, to catch a few cinders that would fall off the engines to take them home uh, for the fire, to, for my mum to cook something. There were seven children and with my mum and dad, nine people to feed. It was horrific. And that's why uh, my mum moved things for us to move to Australia, the best decision that she ever made in her life. Mm. And so about what age did you move to Australia? I was, uh, we arrived here in October 1952, and I turned 12 on the 28th of November. So did your dad serve in, in the war? Was he involved? Oh, yes. My father was in the Navy. He used to brag about how they took on the Deutschlander, you know, one of the German big ships mm -hmm. or something, I imagine it was. And they were so quiet during the fog and that it missed them, you know, they were very quiet on the ship and it missed them. So yeah, he was in the Navy, he was a ship's rigger. Mm -hmm. And um, I have memories of him and hundreds of men gathering outside the shipping yards. We we lived just down the Brie. The Brie is a, a short lane, a short street from the big shipping yards, a James Brown shipping yards. And the men would all gather there outside the gates hundreds of them waiting for the gaffers to call out number one or number two or wh whoever they were going to take on for the day. And those men would get just a few hours work um, breaking down those big ships that they were finished with. But 
days and days went by and they didn't get chosen. So mm. there was no money, yeah. no food. So when you, you, so you guys were able to move to Australia. When you moved to Australia, where did you end up? Did you come straight to Sydney? No, we went to the migrant hostel in Berkeley and we lived there for about um, six months. And then my father, in those days, the Housing Commission public housing was by ballot. Okay. It was like drawing the straw. And we um, we picked, my father got a four-bedroom Housing Commission home in Unandera, and uh, we lived there. Wow. We had nothing. When we moved into the house, it was an empty house, floorboards. We, the Smith family, it was at the time, came and dropped off a dozen army blankets, and we slept on them on top of newspaper on the floor. And my dad had a job at the mines, Nebel Colliery, and he used to bring home these wooden butter boxes, they called them, and it had Ajax on the side of them, and half a dozen put together on the end was our table, and we had each one for a chair. So you grew, grew up in that environment, and obviously you ended up going to school when you came oh, to Oh, yes, Australia. yes. Went to, um, I went to high school, went straight into high school. I went to Coromel High School, and um, from there, I didn't go on to leaving certificate. I left at the intermediate certificate because with so many in a house, you had to work. Mm. And uh, I went straight into nursing. Straight yeah, to I nursing. forged, I used my sister's birth certificate because she was 18 months older than me. Oh man. So you went to nursing. How long were you working in, in nursing for? Uh, three years. And then my mother um, had a hysterectomy and was very, very ill. And so she wanted me to come home and look after the children mm. because she couldn't do it. But um, I loved the nursing. I, I mean, med medical and teaching is all through the family. Yeah. And I loved the nursing. I was very sorry to leave it. Yeah. yeah. And your daughter ultimately got involved in nursing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. That's cool. We've got, I don't know, I think we've got... Uh, two doctors and five lawyers, and I don't know how many teachers, I don't count them up now. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So ultimately you found your way into the church. Would you mind sharing with us that story as to how you found your way into the Pentecostal church? I think in hindsight, looking back from where I am now, um, the Lord was actually very active in my life at a very young age. One of the wonderful things that the education department in Scotland did at that time in Glasgow, uh, I don't know how many children were in my primary school then, but maybe 200 or more. But twice a year, the whole school marched those children en masse down the street to a big Baptist church, Easter and Christmas. And all those children were crammed in and I remember that was where I learned songs like, um, there is a green hill far away without a city wall. And um, all the Christmas carols and Jerusalem and the holy city, songs that you never hear sung today, but songs that move the heart. Mm -hmm. I think these songs were what drove the British army and the men and the singing uh, when they were at war for mm. fighting, you know. And um, and I remember when I was 11 years old, my uncle, who was um, 
quite wealthy, but he never had anything to do with us because he lived on another plane. Um, but he came to visit when I turned 11 and he said to me, uh, it's your 11th birthday, what would you like? Uh, would you like piano lessons or would you like a bike? And straight away my mind thought, wow, there's no children around here do piano lessons or have a bike all to themselves. But suddenly my mouth opened and I said, no, I want a Bible. Oh. And then I thought, why did I see that? Why did I see that? And he was astonished. He said, a Bible? What would you do with a Bible? And I sort of got my back up and thought, well, I want that Bible. And I got the Bible. Wow. And I've still got it today when I was 11 years of age. And I remember this rice paper, which they don't use today, a rice paper Bible. So when I look back on my life, I thought, why did I want a Bible? But that was the Lord, most definitely. Mm. That was where I learned my very first scripture, which um, saw me through some very bad times. Psalm 46, um, God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in time of need. Mm. Yeah. So that was, I think, there was a seed planted at that time by the Lord, unbeknownst to me. But my first experience in a relationship with God was when my husband collapsed and from an aneurysm in the brain. And the doctors told me to let, let him go. He wouldn't survive that night. And I got down for the very first time in my life on my knees. And I just prayed and I said, God, if you save my husband, I'll go to church. Mm. And my way of thinking, that was a big sacrifice. Right. Go to church. Not I'll serve you or, you know, but I'll go to church. And, um, and I went uh, once and there was only half a dozen people in it. And they all looked to be in the 80s. And I thought, oh, I just couldn't keep coming here. So I didn't go again. And I said to him, look, God, I'm sorry. Uh, I did try, but it's really boring and I can't go anymore. And then I left it. Do I you, didn't go back. Do you remember which church that was? What, what yes, yes, it was a Presbyterian church in Albion Park Rail. And it was inside an A-frame building. Wow. Yeah, in the shopping centre it was. And so I thought, in my ignorance, that was it. I would go on living my life and doing whatever I wanted. Mm. I didn't realise then that, you know, they don't call him the hounds of heaven for nothing. And uh, I didn't realise he was already after me. <laughs> so um wasn't long after that. I went up. My husband had an operation to fix up this aneurysm. And the specialist told me it would take a while for him to settle down. And um, he was a very aggressive and he'd never been like that. But the operation, the fear, everything, it became hard to live with. And I thought, mm. I'm going to take a holiday. I'll get away, settle down emotionally from all this. And um, yeah, I went up to visit my sister and everybody said, don't go to visit her. She'll convert you. She's a Christian. And I said, nobody's ever going to convert me. That'll be for sure, you know. Anyway, I went up there. And, and your, your sister is Sister Sarah Butcher? This was Sister Sarah Butcher. That's right. She's my youngest sister. And um, while I was there, God actually spoke to me. I heard the voice as clear, as clear as anything. It was a male voice. 
and it spoke inside me and it said to me, if you don't repent and get baptised before you return to Sydney, you're going to hell. Oh, wow. And I remember the fear that was struck in me. I, I thought to myself, with all the trouble with my husband's illness, I'm losing my mind. I'm mm. hearing voices. That was what I thought. And then the voice three times, three times. If you do not repent and get baptised before you go back to Sydney, you're going to hell. Wow. And so I went and saw my sister and I told her, she said, I'm having nothing to do with it. The family's going to blame me. <laughs> and I, she said, you've got to go and see the pastor yourself. I'm not doing it. So I went and saw the pastor and I didn't tell my head a voice. I just said I wanted to be baptised. Anyway, he did and I was baptised in Townsville and that was the beginning of my walk with the Lord. Was that Brother Jacobson? That was the no, pastor? that was John Olney, long before Brother Jacobson oh, wow. came along. Yeah, Brother John Olney. And when I got back to Sydney, um, I used to smoke, you know. I, I smoked about 50 cigarettes a day. Oh, really? And after I was baptised, um, I went to uh, light up a cigarette. And I heard the voice again that spoke to me, and it said, do not defile the temple of the living God. And I was so shocked. I never smoked another cigarette as long as I lived. Had you ever, you've never been taught that sort of thing? Oh, I had no teaching. Yeah, wow, that's <laughs> incredible. No teaching. And, um, but the night, that night that I heard the voice telling me not to defile the temple of the Holy Ghost, I couldn't sleep. And I sat up in bed, Dave and Sarah were fast asleep and I was down the other end of the house. And I sat up in bed and I started weeping. Um, I sobbed like I'd never sobbed in my life before. Mm. I didn't even know why I was weeping, but I just wept and wept. And the thought that was in my mind is, you're 40 years of age and you have absolutely nothing to show for it. You've wasted 40 years of your life. Wow. And I couldn't stop crying. And I was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit and couldn't speak in English. The, Holy Ghost just poured out of me. And I was so tired, exhausted from it. I didn't know if you could turn it off. <laughs> and I just said, I'm tired. If this is real, I'm very tired. And the Lord spoke to me again and he said, I am the Lord thy God. I am the essence of man. No matter where you are or what you're doing, I will always be with you. I will never leave you. I have never forgotten the words that he's spoken to me, but they were the beginning of my relationship with him. And of course, it's only grown since then. That's an amazing story. And mm. one of the things I, I love when hearing your story and talking about your story is, is what you mentioned there towards the end of what you were just sharing, that you're 40 years old and you felt like you had wasted your life. And, and obviously, if you stick through this conversation, you're going to get to hear all that uh, Sister Bellette was able to do in the kingdom of God, even coming to the Lord at the age of 40 and responding to the call of God at that age. So I'd like to get into that a little bit. When did you feel the call to ministry? And what was that like? Because obviously you, you've had a powerful conversion. Uh, you've turned away from sin. You've turned to God. And then at some point you would have taken that next step to where you're wanting to be actively involved in ministry. When did you feel that call? Was it at the same time? 
I was never, that I can remember, um, called to the ministry. I, I, I was not aware of it. After my conversion experience, I went back to Sydney and I told my husband, who was a Catholic, and he said to me, I don't want you to know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I said to the Lord, Lord, you heard the man, what am I going to do? And he said to me, the Lord answered, and he said, have no fear for your husband. He's in the palm of my hand. He said, love him. Now, my understanding of love him was Sergis. Mm -hmm. So he was drinking quite heavily at the time. And he thought because I'd become a Christian, that opened the door for him to drink even more. Mm. And so he, he did. But I never said a word. I just loved him to death. I made sure his meals were on the table and everything was done to make his life. Never raised my voice, never criticized him if he came home drunk. Or, and one night he came home and he said, um, what are you doing? And I said, reading my Bible. And I said to him, would you like me to read you a little bit? And of course he was drunk. And he said, yeah. So he sat down at my knee and I read to him about the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Hmm. And he said, oh, he said, keep going. And I said, no, you've had enough. And so that was it. And so slowly, slowly, he, um, he just said to me one morning, what time does your service start? And I said, 10 o'clock. And he said, I'll come with you. And I said, no, I don't want you to come with me. You go to your Catholic church. And he said, no, no, he says, I want to know why you go to church every time, every, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And so he came and he never stopped coming. Wow. And the Lord wonderfully filled him with the Holy Ghost. And so my understanding of my study of the word was that he was the spiritual head of the house and that my, my work, my service to the Lord was to support my husband. So I never had any idea of ministry for me. It right. was always him. Hmm. And when the call came for the ministry, it didn't come to me, it came to him. Right. Mm -hmm. And because you, you two were married, you felt to follow in with him, to serve with definitely. him in ministry. Yes, definitely. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, but, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but obviously your husband passed away years later. So was there a transference that took place when that happened as far as ministry goes? Or how, yeah. how, how would you describe that? Um, we had, you know, years of passing. We're not talking yeah, the overnight, right? So, I mean, I think we were nine years in Faith Chapel. And then the Lord moved us to go to um, Bible school in Perth. Mm -hmm. And while we were in Perth, my husband um, was serving um, as a sort of assistant pastor with Brother Bedell. And we had a call one afternoon from Brother Jacobson. And he knew that my husband was a retired teacher, school teacher, and that we were mature. And um, he asked my husband if he would be willing to take two years out of his life to help the Minister for Education in Kiribati. And um, my husband spoke to me about it, and I had a picture of um, white sands, coral beaches, and uh, palm trees, coconut palms. My husband working, and me sort of lying underneath the trees, enjoying myself, and perhaps sharing with the women. And uh, so I said, oh, I think it's a fantastic idea. 
So he said, okay, and Brother Jacobson said, would you write to the Minister for Education and get things started? So we did all that. And the Minister for Education in Kiribati said to my husband, can you apply through the Australian Volunteers Abroad? Um, because this will help us financially if they pay your fares, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And we did. But when the interview came with the Australian Volunteers Abroad, they said, Ron, Ronald, they called him, Ronald, uh, you, um, you were a maths teacher for 15 years in high school, and you have got wonderful um, skills and abilities that we can actually use. But Margaret, we're sorry, you just don't have anything that we can use. So yes, you can go along with your husband as um, the wife, of course, mm -hmm. but we won't be paying you any um, support or anything like that. We can only sort of use Ronald's skills. Right. And I thought, oh, well, you know, that's how you feel about it. <laughs> I'll go and lie underneath the palm trees, you know. <laughs> I had it all planned. I was very happy, actually, you know. And so we got in touch with Brother Jacobson and told him, and he thought, oh, that's great. And then about a fortnight later, the programme officer, um, she, Andrea Flew, her name was, she rang and she said, oh, Ronald, um, she said, I'm sorry, but we can't send you to Kiribati. We would rather send you to um, Ereanjaya because the need there is greater. And he said, oh, well, we'll get in touch with you. And so I thought Erianjaya was Iran. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I didn't yeah. know where Erianjaya yeah. was. Yeah. And um, so we looked it up in the Atlas, and when I saw where it was, I said, I don't want to go there. Yeah. Because you could see the natives with the bones through yeah. their nose and everything, and I thought, oh, I don't want to go there. Yeah. And uh, But he said, well, we'll give it a go and see how it goes, and if it doesn't work out, we'll come back. So when he told Brother Jacobson, Brother Jacobson got in touch with um, Brother Sism and the foreign missions of UPCI. Yeah. They had been trying to get a couple into um, Irianjaya for 30 years, never oh, been right. able to get anybody oh, in. Right. And so they were, they were just absolutely thrilled. So we left on the um, 1st of November, 1993. Mm -hmm. And we arrived in Irianjaya. We did six weeks language school, and I learned to say hello, good night, and good morning. <laughs> and um, because it was getting to Christmas, and nobody was really interested in studying. What was the language they spoke over there? The, What's the language that they spoke? Uh, over? Bahasa, Bahasa Indonesian, yeah. And um, we arrived in Irianjaya about six o'clock on the twenty-first of the 20th of December, six o'clock at night. You have to remember there was no um, street lights, mm. um, very heavy cloud cover, pitch black. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And we got picked up and taken to a guest room, a guest hotel. And the next morning, my husband said to me, let's go for a walk and see what it looks like. And we went down a little hill and he just said to me, I'm not going to make it. And I said, what do you mean? Are you tired? Will we go back up? He said, I'm just not going to make it. And he lay down and died. Oh, my goodness. That was it. <laughs> I, uh, I had never known that you guys were initially supposed to go to Kiribati. Yeah. I didn't know that. All these years, I thought uh, Irinjara was always the plan. No, no. Kiribati, yeah. Oh. 
and there was no coral beaches and palm yeah, trees in Erinjaya, believe me. Yeah. Mm. So Erinjaya is West Papua. Yes, um, that's West Papua now. But it's actually Indonesia. Cause it, yes, it's, it's it used to be island. Dutch New Guinea. Okay. Hmm? Yeah, it's the same island as Papua New Guinea. Yes. But the west side is Indonesia, the that's east correct. side is Papua New Guinea. That's correct. Okay. So when he passed, obviously everything, the, the setup, the support, the financial support, all that was going through him. They, they told you that, That's good. that you didn't have mm-hmm. anything to offer. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened after that? Um, I had very good friends who were also missionaries, Americans, brother and sister plowmen, and they got in touch with me and they said, come over and stay with us for a couple of months until the emotional upheaval and the grieving is, you know. So I brought his body back to Australia, which in itself was a miracle, because normally they didn't allow the bodies to leave, you know, uh, leave Indonesia to come in. And he was buried on the 29th of December down at Mogul, where he was born. And um, I went to the States and stayed with my friends, uh, brother and sister Plowman, for a while. And while I was there, they asked me if I would speak to... You must remember, I was not a minister. I was just a saint. I wasn't accustomed to getting up and speaking to anybody. That was my husband's part. But Brother Plowman said to me one morning, he said, will you stand up and speak to the people after the service? Just let them know what happened. And I did. And a woman came up to me and she said, she was a GP, a doctor, and she said, do you, do you believe that you and your husband were called to go to Jaya? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, um, you know, I, I said, I, I don't have an answer for that. I believe we were, but I don't know now. And she said, if God had really wanted you to go there, why do you think he allowed your husband to die? Mm. I said, I don't know. His thoughts are way above our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I don't know. And she said, don't you see? Would you have gone to Irianjaya if your husband had died in Australia? I said, oh, no. Mm. She said, don't you see? She said, it wasn't your husband. God used your husband to take you to Irianjaya, but you're the one who's going to be the missionary. And when she said this to me, I felt... I feel an overpowering sense of the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. But it was frightening at the same time, but I never said anything. When I got back to Australia, I got a call from the Australian Volunteers Abroad. And they said, Margaret, we're really sorry about Ronald. We really liked Ronald, you know, but we would like to ask you if you would return in, instead and carry on the work. And I said, but I don't have anything to offer. Mm. I said, I've got nothing. And they said, yes, but the need now is not your husband's skills. You have an accounting background and a computer background, and this is what we really need. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it took us two years to get a visa to get in there because it's controlled by the military, and no Westerners were allowed in. I said, I'm not waiting two years for a working visa to get back in there. Right. I can't put my life on hold for yeah, that long. of course. She said, if we can get the working visa quicker, will you go? I thought to myself, in my ignorance, I thought, huh, they haven't got a hope, so I'm as safe as the Bank of England. So I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, about four or five days later, she rang me again and she said, 
just want to let you know, Margaret, you're leaving on the 4th of April. Oh you're goodness. going in through Papua New Guinea. That gave me about three weeks, or four weeks it was, to organise everything and to go in. And while, and, and all came, and I've, I've got to share this, because this is the Lord, it's because of the Lord. So yes. All the time there was doubt, all the time there was doubt. There was fear. I didn't have my husband. I was still grieving. And this time I'm going in through Papua New Guinea. The rascals were very real. When the car picked me up at the airport in Papua New Guinea, Port Moresby, to go to the hotel to stay overnight before I boarded the plane to get into Eriangaya next morning, everything was locked. Don't open your door. Don't open your window. The fear of attack was really very, very powerful. Right. And so that... I sat in that hotel room that night thinking to myself, I wrote it in my journal, why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here? I haven't heard from the Lord. I don't understand what's going on. And anyway, the next morning I boarded the plane, there were some Papuan ladies, a German man sitting behind me with a couple of his friends. And all of a sudden, um, I just... I looked at the pigs and the chickens in the plane and I thought, this is madness, absolute madness. And um, then we had to get off at Vanimo to show our visas before we went over the border into Eriangaya. And it was a 4b2 piece of wood on top of two 44-gallon drums. And I approached it and the man said to me, 15 kina. I said, I don't have any kina. I only have um, Indonesian rupiah, or I have my card, 15 kina, or you don't get back on the plane. And I thought, oh, Lord. And the German man behind me, he said, I'll pay you 15 kina if you give me the rupiah. Mm. I had a sheaf of rupiah in my hand, about a million rupiah at the time. And I said, oh, thank you, thank you. I said, what's the exchange rate? And he said, don't worry about the exchange rate. You give me what you've got there. I said, that's all I've got. I said, if I give you that, I can't get a taxi to Jayapura and nobody knows I'm coming. And he said, no, he said, I'll pay you 15 kina, but you've got to give me the rupiah. So I gave him the rupiah so I could get back on the plane. I got into the plane, the plane took off. I'm looking out the window and I'm weeping. And I said, Lord, Nobody knows I'm coming. I'm just arriving. I don't know how to get to Jayapura. It's a narrow drive. And I turned around and I said to the man, excuse me, is somebody picking you up? And he said, yes. I said, do you think I could get a lift into um, Jayapura with you? Oh, I don't know, he said. You'll have to wait and we'll see. Mm. So anyway, when we arrived, um, and I'm sitting there crying quietly, when we arrived and were waiting for the luggage to come off the carousel, I heard someone calling, Salamat uh, datang, Ibu Margaret. Salamat datang. And I looked around to see if there was somebody else called Margaret, another woman. And I couldn't see anybody who looked like a Westerner. And then I heard again, Ibu Margaret, Salamat datang. And I looked up and there was a crowd of people on a, um, what do you call it? A, veranda type thing that ran around the top of the um where you get your luggage out and they were all waving to me 
And I looked at him and I thought, I don't know anybody out there. And then the next thing, they all ran down the stairs and they spoke to the man guarding the door. He opened it and they all came in. And they put garlands of flowers around my neck. And they had a tray with beads and things on it. And they hugged me. And I mean, I didn't understand the word they were saying, you know. <laughs> but they took me out and outside there were four kijangs, which are big four-wheel drives. And, and I said, is this for me? And yes, yes, yes. And I happened to look along the um, walkway and the German man was still standing down there and his lift hadn't come. <laughs> and I walked down to him and I said, uh, have you got a lift? And he said, no, he said, it looks like they haven't turned up. I said, do you want me to ask my friends to take you into Jaipura? And he said yes. <laughs> and I knew then this is of the Lord. Mm. So who who were those people, though, the ones that met you at the Those airport? people belonged to a women's group. Mm. And um, when my husband died in Abipura, a Dutch missionary, um, Marika, Marika Werimon, um, had come. She was my translator to organise my husband's body to go back to Australia. She got a call from Andrea Flew, my programme officer, to say that I was arriving unexpectedly and could she look after me. Wow. She put the word out and I became known as the woman whose husband died and she came back. Wow. That was what they revealed to me that's, as. That's amazing. <laughs> and um, just uh, getting back to the, the comment that the lady in America said to you where she said, you know, do you not realize that you are the one that's called? It's so powerful when you actually think about it, because as you said, what happened to your husband could have happened at any stage of it. I mean, because he'd already had an aneurysm before. That's right. Um, survived that. Yes. And it could have happened at any stage. Yes. And you were the one that first came to the Lord. You're the one that brought him. Yes. And it's almost as if the Lord knew that it required him taking you on the journey for you to take these next steps and to, yes. to grow in your walk. Yeah. And the thing is, because my husband was working for the government, he'd had all these checkups. You know, like there was no illness, no sickness. Mm. He'd never had a heart problem. Mm. Yeah, like that. So you're the woman whose husband passed away and yet came back mm. to Irinjara, to Jarapura. How were you able to keep going when you were met with all of these setbacks? How How would you say, what was... The thing that um, if you were to give anyone advice or to talk to someone about how to keep going when when things don't go the way that you think they're supposed to go, which I could imagine, you know, we have a huge example with your husband, but then also when you're over there starting the church in Jarapura, it definitely wouldn't have gone all sunshine and roses over there. So how do you how do you respond in situations like that? You weep. <laughs> You go back to your little house on your own and you sob and you cry and you whinge and complain and you say to the Lord, why am I here? And um, at one time I did consider if it was worthwhile finishing it all. Mm. I lay flat on the floor on my face. There is no easy answer. There is no, you know... People think of missions with 
they have a romantic notion mm. about missions. Well, there may be missionaries that have that sort of missionary life. Gladys Aylward, when she took those children from China and walked over those mountains, that's where I see a missionary. Missionaries suffer. Mm. You suffer. They're not sufferings that you can share. They're sufferings deep down inside. They're to do with your relationship with God. They're to do with your faith. And I honestly don't know what it is that keeps you going from level to level with your faith. It's just the knowledge that he will never let you down. My conversion experience has stayed with me all my life. Mm. No one can ever take that away from me. So no matter what obstacles I come up against, I just push through. You have failures. You see yourself as <laughs> one of those foolish things that God has chosen to confound the world. Suffering, humiliation, I've had them all. Mm. But you push through and you know that when the time is right, he's going to bless you and take that pain away yeah. and lift you up onto another level. Mm. That's how I yeah. have got through it all. Yeah, and that's so powerful, like leaning on your faith in God that you've established over years. You know, that's why it's so important. That's why when people are, when preachers are preaching, they're talking about having that daily prayer life, having, you know, that relationship yes, and, yes. and the consistency and the faithfulness. Because when you do go through those hard times, you can fall back on that. And when you go through those hard times, I don't know about others, but I'm the one that does all the talking to the Lord. It's not like he's saying, there, there, child, it's mm. all right. No, no. It's like gates of brass. Mm. And you think to yourself, why aren't you answering me? Don't you see the situation that I am in? Right. But in your heart, you know he's listening. And when the time is right, when the time is right, and you have suffered long enough, he will take you out of it. Mm. He'll remove you. So getting back to Jayapura, so you arrive in Jayapura, you know a little bit of Bahasa, but not much. A little bit. Mm -hmm. And you've got a job lined up, but there's no church. Like no, oh, no. there's no UBC church no, in Jayapura. No. So where did you go from there? You, you're getting, you, you, you arrive, uh, you start the job, and then now you're going about what, starting Bible studies. How did you proceed? Um, I love pioneering churches. Mm. I, I didn't realize I did until you, you, it's one after another sort of thing and you think to yourself, I really enjoy this. The first thing you do is um, create friendships. You love people, you serve them and make friends. Mm. And, and the thing is, Brother Greg, you don't do it. You do make friends, like I started the job. Mm -hmm. And they used to all go out onto the veranda talking in the bahasa. I never understood the word they said. Right. But I would make 10 flashcards every day, on one side English and on the other side bahasa. And I had a English bahasa in, um, dictionary and I had a bahasa English dictionary. So every day I set myself the goal of learning 10 new words. Mm. And I worked on the belief that if I learned verbs, first of all, doing words, 
I'll be able to understand a little bit of what they're talking about. We really don't realise how many verbs we're using all the time while we're speaking, you know. Mm. And so I thought, I'll start with verbs. And then from the verbs, I went on to adjectives. And then I popped in some nouns and things. And then one day I noticed that um, they wouldn't talk uh, around me. They would take the telephone and pull the cord so that they were outside. And I said to them, why are you doing that? And they said, because you understand us now. <laughs> and I felt really chuffed about that. I thought, they recognise that I'm beginning to understand them. And so when they want to speak about things they don't want me knowing, they go outside the door with the telephone. We didn't have mobile phones then, you know. Yeah. And um, so, but they corrected me. I did say to them, if I make a mistake, please correct me, which they did. But I would say it took me six months mm. before I was um, comfortable preaching in another language. That's a different thing altogether, you know. What do you, why do you say that? Well, uh, preaching is something for me that comes from the heart. Right. It, it's a natural mm. thing. It's, you know, whereas when you're speaking in another language, your brain is functioning, finding the right word to translate. I'll give you an example. Like they have a, they have a word for grass and it's called rumput, R-U-M-P-U-T. They also have a word for head, or not head, um, hair, which is called ramput, which is R-A-M-P-U-T. Now they also have a word for coconut, which is kelapa, K-E-L-A-P-A, and they have a word for head, which is kapala, K-E-P-A-L-A. So you see, with the grass and the hair and the head and the coconut, they're using the same letters, right. but just in different positions. So when you're preaching, like when I started, I often used to refer to Jesus Christ as the coconut of the church instead of the head of the church. Head, yeah. And if I was talking about not cutting your hair, I would say your grass is the glory of God, <laughs> you know, not hair. Yeah. And they would be sitting looking at me and rolling in the seats laughing. They understood, right. you know. And um, so it took me a while before I was able to preach in uh, Bahasa. And some of them said to me, please, Ibo, they said, don't use a translator. We prefer you to preach to us in our Bahasa, mm. the market Indonesian. Mm. We understand that. We don't understand the academic. Right. You know, so, yeah. I mean, I was there for quite a long time. So yeah, how, long, how long were you in Jarapura? Uh, I did two lots of the contract, which was two years, four years. Uh, 1994? Uh, until 2002. In Jarapura, you mm. were there for eight mm. years. Mm. I've actually been there. I was lucky, lucky enough to travel with you back uh, a few years ago. And I think, was that your last time in Jarapura? Was I with no, you? No. You I, I was there in 2018. I went over oh, with yeah. Sister um, Jacobson yes. and Brother Jonathan. Yes, that's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they were one. And her granddaughter. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Um, but I was... Yeah, I was blessed to go there, and obviously I went there 20 years after. <laughs> Were you on the trip with Elizabeth? Was no, I went the uh, one before that. So oh, okay. it was, it was uh, you, uh, Brother Simon Butcher, Sister 
Marcella Ferrari, myself, oh, and Steph. Right, I remember. We that was 2015. Yes. 15 or 16. Yeah, mm. one of those years. Yeah. Yeah, we went and uh, went through Nibiri as well. We yes, Nibiri. yes, Brother Diaz's church. Yeah. He died this year. Yeah, yes, yeah. 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 Uh, wonderful man. Beautiful people. Just oh, yeah. absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were landing in Nibiri. J- Jayapur obviously is a lot more developed than Nibiri. Nibiri's a little small. Oh, yes. Town. Well, it's the capital city. Yeah. It's known as the Hong Kong of the Pacific. Yeah. And when we flew into J- uh, N- Nibiri, it's like a, it was like a one-lane uh, yes. airport. And, yeah. and you're getting yeah. off on, on the yeah. Tomara. Very poor. Very yeah. poor. Quite primitive in a sense. They, yeah. they had their security belt and it wasn't actually on. <laughs> like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, that's not as bad as Roti Island. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't been on uh, that trip yet. But So you were in Jaipur for eight years and started out with no UPC work there. Now there's a church in Jaipur. Oh, there's about 13, I think. And not for me. I only started one. Right. Um, then there was Nabiri. And now they've got Manapwari is one there. Um, so were there no churches on Irinjara at all? No. Wow, okay. Oh, wait a minute. In the Biri at that time, going back to 94, there was a small work and it was run by a woman. Okay. And um, I can't remember her name. Her husband had started it from Jakarta. And he died and she continued it, but nothing had ever happened with it. It was just there. And that was it? In yeah, I didn't know her, never met her, huh. no. But Brother Diaz, I don't know where he came from. Um, I think he came, I think her name was Suarez or something, but I think he came out of her church and started to work on his own okay. because he didn't want, he was quite... He didn't want a woman pastor, mm-hmm. and he so he started the work. He was wonderful. Mm-hmm. He was wonderful. Yeah, very nice yeah. man. Yeah. Um, snack, not snake. That's what he oh, yes. after he was, service. Yeah. He came up to Jayapur a few times, and we met, and um, he always came in and visited and had a meal and that, you know. Had a great love for Brother yeah. Diaz. Very nice man. So you you uh, started the church in Jayapura, and, uh, and then... Oh, we ended up building a building there as well through mm-hmm. the overseas mission. Beautiful Stop. building. Yeah. A, a beautiful building. Um, at the time, uh, I could see for myself that when I first had a little group, I think I had about 12, 10 or 12 people I'd managed to get. And you must remember, if you get the father, you've got the family. Mm-hmm. So in actual fact, in that little group I had, I had two families. Mm. And um, both of them were builders, strangely enough. Wow. And we met, we used to gather under the house. Um, you would go down a little dark concrete alleyway and then you were under the house. You couldn't be seen from the street. Um, so when the riots were on, we were under there and we were praying, worshipping, and we heard a big truck pull up outside and we heard all the shouting and the rioting. And it was at that particular time, the um, GI, the, the Muslims who caused the riots, were in Jayapura. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to go around um, causing a lot of trouble. And uh, 
I said to them, when I heard the footsteps running down, I said, don't open your eyes, don't open your eyes, just keep praying, keep praying. And suddenly they all ran in and then they ran out again and got back into their truck. <laughs> we were all still standing there with our eyes shut. They were looking for Christians, you see. Mm. But I believe to this day that they never saw us. Wow. They just didn't see us. Yeah, because even everybody said afterwards, oh, Ipu, Ipu. oh, you know, they were all terrified. And I thought at that time, why are we under here like this hiding? Mm. And so I spoke to Brother Jacobson and I just said to him, look, we've got to have land. We've got to have our own place and uh, the Lord will look after it. So he, he raised um, $35,000 and that bought the land and built the church. It's a it's a nice church too. Beautiful church. To there. Yeah. And it's in a very um, good spot now. It's worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That's ama- that is amazing that you went there with with nobody else there. Not much like not much experience, right? No experience. Starting churches, <laughs> anything, and just through Bible studies, through relationships, you were able to mm-hmm. build a church there in Jaipur. I hope you have been enjoying this conversation with Sister Bellette. What an amazing woman and what an amazing story. If you have enjoyed it, you will not want to miss part two of this conversation. It's it's the final part where we will be talking about her becoming a full-time missionary with the UPCA in Jakarta. There she established a Bible school and, and did a number of other things, helping establish works in the area in Bali and, and other places what it was like for her when she planted a church in Darwin as a home missionary when she came back to Australia, uh, becoming the overseas missions director of the UPCA. And also uh, she gives some advice to those who feel the call to ministry. There's other things that she talks about. It's a wonderful episode and you will not want to miss her word for those who listen to the podcast. So make sure to, to join back next week for the final part of my conversation with Sister Bellette. God bless you and thank you for your time today. We'll be seeing you next time on the Hacker Podcast.